uh, hey, we're in John chapter one, as Ed said uh, last week. Uh, we're coming there this week. So turn there if you have a physical copy of your Bible. If you use a digital version, uh, if you go to uh, your app store called uh, and find an app called Church Center, uh, you'll be able to look on that, find exchange, and then there's a button right on the homepage uh, that will take you to a place called Sermon Notes. Uh, everything that we uh, say or, or reference uh, this morning and each week is on there for about a week. But I would encourage you, especially as we start uh, the book of John, I'd encourage you, this is not just some old uh, crusty dude, uh, I would just encourage you, maybe this is the chance where you grab your physical copy and you bring it with you, you highlight things, you underline things, you write things. Uh, it, it will serve you well, I promise. I promise it'll serve you well. Uh, there's, for some reason, there's great comfort. Uh, in the times where uh, we're waiting in the Lord, we're looking for the Lord, uh, there's just great comfort. It's, it's like a friend that's been with you, right? And so uh, I would encourage you, maybe that's for you today. Um, and while you're turning there, I'd like to take uh, maybe a survey. If anyone knows uh, the name Michael Buffer, does anybody know Michael Buffer? Uh, there's one, I see like one head. Michael Buffer, though you may not know the name, uh, certainly uh, you know what he's famous for. He's not an actor. He's not an athlete. He is an announcer who's famous for five words. Let's get ready to rumble. You've probably heard those before, and Michael Buffer has actually made a living on these five words. In 1984, he began to say this with some type of emphasis that attracted all kinds of attention. And by 1992, he acquired a federal trademark for that phrase. Since then, Buffer has used that licensing deal in things like uh, best-selling albums, Jock Jams, video games, numerous other uh, products. In addition, he's used the phrase, uh, variations of the phrase in other advertisements uh, for the lottery, uh, let's get ready to win big. For Kraft cheese, let's get ready to crumble. And for progressive insurance, let's get ready to bundle. Uh, he's made over $500 million on his ability to announce certain things. I have missed my calling in life. <laughs> the power of the introduction, Sugar Ray Leonard says, of Buffer, is when you introduce something with such energy, with such passion, especially a boxer, it makes me want to fight, he says. But when you're faced with introducing God, what do you say? What do you say when, when your task is to say, tell us what you know about Jesus, about the Son of God, the living God, the creator of the universe? What do you say and how do you begin? John chooses an interesting way. Uh, in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, they spend a great deal amount of time focusing on the words uh, or, or the, the incarnation of Jesus from the baby, from the beginning. Uh, they tell the story of Mary, Joseph, wise men, shepherds, and angels. They record a story of Elizabeth and a miraculous birth. Mark skips over that and he begins with John the Baptist. John, however, goes all the way back to the dawn of creation. The pre-existing moments of God the Father and his only begotten son as the spirit hovered over the darkness 
in the vast empty canvas. John gives us this prologue, this prequel to Christmas, to the prophets, to Moses, to Abraham, to the Garden of Eden even. He introduces us primarily to his Jewish audience, to the person of Jesus, who was God that became flesh. And so that's where we pick up today in John chapter 1, all the way through 18. We'll read together and then we'll see what we can learn from this passage. In the beginning, he says, was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. And he was in the beginning with God and all things came into being through him and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. Light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John and he as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was a true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This is he who has said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Would you pray with me as we dive into this text? Father, I pray that as we look at these words preserved for us for thousands of years, you would show us clearly who you are through your son, Jesus what you have for us today. I pray that it would shape us, not just shape our eternity, but it would shape our lives. Lord, would you help us place a verdict on who we believe you to be beginning today? And it's your name we pray, amen. So uh, it's interesting that John begins his letter with the same words that Moses begins his letter, his account all the way back uh, called Genesis. They both write these first three words, in the beginning. We'll come back to that in a second. But John also does something very interesting. He doesn't refer to Jesus by name until much later in verse 17. It takes John 17 verses, 17 verses before he would begin to uh, display or announce the name of Jesus. Instead, he chooses a word and a name associated with so much meaning Uh, The word, he says, or in the Greek, the logos. This underlying term logos was used widely in a lot of different ways. It's led to a lot of speculation about what it actually meant and what John wanted to communicate uh, in this passage. Uh, It had so many meanings, especially in the Greek, that many suggestions have been made. The Stoics, uh, philosophers of the day, understood the uh, the logos to be this rational principle by which everything existed. It was like a life force. It was the essence of the rational human soul. 
More generally, it could, could be referred to as inner thought, reason, even science. The primary point of the reference, though, is, is almost certainly Jewish in nature. And we see that as, as John would assume a working knowledge of Scripture. That pu- pushes us back to how he began uh, this letter in the beginning. It, it was as if John was saying for shorthand, remember in Genesis. As John is pushing our thoughts all the way back to the dawn of creation in, in God speaking the world into existence, he's, he's choosing uh, very specifically to push our minds back there. The word appears, of course, in Genesis. The word of God appears, of course, in Genesis 1 as the means where God would accomplish his act of creation when he said, let there be light. We also see it in verses 6, 9, 11, 14, 12, 20, 24, and 26. The word of God is God himself revealing creation. But also throughout the Old Testament, the word of God, the logos of the theos would be explained in many different ways. In in Psalm chapter 33, verse six, he says this, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all their lights. We see here again, an underscore an under highlighting of creation and God's word being revealed, the person of God being revealed through creation. But also we see deliverance. In Psalm chapter 107, verse 20, and these are just samplings, he says this, Then he sent forth his word, his logos, and healed them, and he saved them from destruction. So we see that his word, his logos, his power is encompassed in this ability for deliverance, his capacity to know us, to know what we need, and also to save us. We see in judgment also in Isaiah 55, 11, he says this, so my word, which goes out from my mouth, my logos, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, what I proclaim, what I announce, and without succeeding in the purpose which I sent it. We see that the word of God, the, the logos of the theos, it would give understanding to the prophets concerning the mind and the will of God. Uh, we see this in Ezekiel, uh, Jeremiah, Isaiah, all of the prophets, really. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 3, he says this, And the word of God came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans, by the river Shebar. And there the hand of the Lord came upon him. So scripture is, is pushing us to say that the word of God, the, the, the essence of who God is, is speaking to the prophets. And by his speaking, he empowers them in ways uh, that are almost supernatural, very supernatural. So this thought of God's illumination, it's, it's developed and personified by John. He gives this term a person. It's the concept of wisdom that we see, particularly in the book of Proverbs, all over And the word of God also served as this common replacement for the name of God that was uh, sacredly used in the Old Testament uh, when the Old Testament was written, uh, was read in the synagogue. The speaker would choose most often a different name, alternative way to express the unmentionable name of God, Yahweh. And most often in the Greek context, in the New Testament, when they were referencing the Old Testament, they would speak in words like this, in the Logos, because it it transformed their minds back to the beginning, all the way back to Genesis. So Logos refers mostly to an action rather than idea, but in short, it's saying the essence of God. His action, his compassion, his judgment, his mercy, his love, his character even. This is who God is. 
So though John hasn't used the name of Jesus yet, he's building a case for what God is like. Later on in verse 17, we'll see the name of Jesus. At this moment, he's just building a case about what God is like and what God has come to do. A case that can't be mistaken or worked around in any way. What John communicates in the first two verses of his letter is this. Jesus is God. He does this with three claims, three very bold statements. Three very bold statements that he'll make in just the first couple of verses. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word, the logos. And the word was with God and the word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. So before the world ever knew Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus eternally existed with the Father. In fellowship, perfectly with the Father and the Spirit. He is internal. He's responsible for creation. Jesus would confirm this in his prayer to the Father in John chapter 17. If you remember this, John 17 verse 5. And now you, Father, glorify me together with yourself. So this is a bold statement in itself that Jesus is praying that somehow he and God could share glory together. Think about that for a second. That an, another being, a, another person, physical person, would say that he was able to share glory with the Father. This is what categorically places Jesus either God or crazy. It's the only two things. I think so often we, we, we think of people or, or we have this idea of, of Jesus. Many people have this idea of Jesus that he was a good teacher. It's really hard to get around the historical person of Jesus. But I think many would, would look at Jesus and say he was a good teacher. He was a good man. In fact, there's a rich young ruler that came to Jesus and addressed Jesus in this way, right? Do you remember this? When he came to him and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And do you remember Jesus' response? He says, whoa, whoa, whoa. There's nobody good except for God. What he's doing is he's pressing on this man who comes to him thinking, oh, Jesus is a good teacher. He's a good man. He's a good prophet. All of those things. And Jesus says, whoa, whoa. Hey, listen, I'm either not even close to good or I'm God because these are the statements that I'm making. Jesus is pressing us even in this moment to make a decision. He's not good if he's not God. He's not good if he's not God. Because of the promises that he makes, he would lead us away from God. If Jesus is not God, then when he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, nobody comes to the Father except for me. If he's not God, then he is one who leads us away from God. It's only one of the two. So Jesus says this, he says, and now glorify me together with yourself, watch this, with the glory which I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus is not only linking himself with God, he's declaring that he existed before anything else did. Before the dawn of creation, Jesus is saying, I was. He's saying, I am. Paul would underscore this later on. The apostle Paul, who uh, for much of his life hated Jesus. He was one who denied that Jesus was God. He, in fact, he, scripture says uh, that he would literally, those who proclaimed Jesus as Lord, uh, scripture says Paul, in Paul's own writings that he was responsible for dragging them out of their house to a place of torture, prison, and death. Because he was so adamant. 
he, he wanted desperately uh, the old religion of the tabernacle and the sacrifices. And so when Jesus comes on the scene and declares to be the Messiah and those people follow him, Paul was saying, I will crush this rebellion against the law. So Paul uh, writes these words after he had this encounter with Jesus. He says this, that he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He says he created things and he sustains all things. Nothing breathes, lives, exists except from the power of God. He's the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead. So he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on the earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. So he doesn't just assert Jesus' deity he begins to unfold these doctrines of the Trinity and credits Jesus' role in creation. Then he divulges this possibility of one of the most outstanding and mind-boggling concepts in all of history, certainly all of Scripture, that, that through Jesus, God's promises and salvation are realized, accomplished, given. I, I want you to, to attempt to try to forget your elementary understandings of, of Jesus. And that when we think about Jesus, yeah, of course, he's the guy that died on the cross. He was the guy that was born in the manger. And I want you to think of Jesus as God who descended from heaven to give his life so that the Father's promise of salvation would be ours. This is mind-boggling. If you imagine for just a second the God of creation stepping off the throne, think about this, who angels would circle around for all of eternity before creation ever existed. The angels, scripture says, would just literally circle the throne singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That's the place that he left so that he could come to us. This is, this is God incarnate, God made flesh. So John writes these things. Verse four, he says, in him was life and the life was the light of mankind and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not grasp it. I mean, so far it's already a manifesto of theology that John is laying out that in him, he says that the power of physical life was breathed, but also the power of spiritual life and eternal life exists. The light that's able to shine through the darkness, he's the one. The one that's able to defeat death and darkness forever. He's the one. There's this incredible point that I believe that John is making and will continue to make all throughout his gospel is that God is not an abstract principle. He's not a type of mystical force. He's not karma. He's not mother nature. He's not some mysterious or distant figure whose greatest desire is to smite us. No, instead, according to John, Jesus is God who stepped off the throne of creation to come and save us from our own despair and destruction. So here's what that means for us, is that if Jesus is God, then God loves you more than you could ever imagine. 
If Jesus is God, this is what it means, that he loves you. God loves you more than you could ever imagine. About 14 years ago, CBS released a show that you've probably heard or seen called, it ran for 10 seasons, called Undercover Boss. If you haven't, it's a relatively simple principle. A CEO or president of a company would dress up what I thought is very poorly disguises, uh, and they would go and enter the company that they ran in the most basic entry-level position. So uh, a CEO that normally resides in a corner office would become a fast food drive through operator. And most often, uh, they would do things like take out the trash, clean restrooms, sometimes endure bullying uh, from managers that they would end up firing later. Sometimes along their journey, they would always meet people who were struggling, being treated unfairly. They would position themselves in ways that they could help, sometimes learn how to run the company better. But the the experiment was was really for a few different reasons. One, I think the intent was, was... the adventure of to, uh, and hope to improve the company of some sorts. What can I learn in these entry-level places that I can make the company better and bigger, more revenue? Of course, there was a, uh, a hope that uh, they would gain some exposure by the TV appearance and also hopefully learn what they could not learn from behind the desk. And I think if we aren't careful, we may be tempted to think of Jesus's mission this way. The God of creation who came down to earth to investigate what his creation was doing, to gain an inside scoop, to report back to the Father. Maybe he would come down to somehow make us better for the purpose of making him better or his kingdom better. But here's the thing is he already knew from the dawn of creation the destruction and despair that was in our hearts. He did not need to come investigate. He did not come to see for himself. He already knew the condition of our hearts. That's why it says that before the foundation of the world was laid, the lamb was slain. Revelation tells us that before Jesus ever spoke creation into existence, he had already submitted to the father to go to the cross. He didn't need to come and see and investigate. He willingly stepped out of creation into the mud and mire of sin, willingly laying down his life for us, not for his sake, but for ours. He wasn't naive to how we would receive him and how humanity would respond to him. Scripture actually declares this hundreds of years before Jesus ever came on the scene. uh, The prophet Isaiah writes these words. He says, he was despised and abandoned by men. The prophet Isaiah is actually writing in the past tense by something that would not happen for hundreds of years. And so he says, he was despised and abandoned men, a man of great pain and familiar with sickness. And like one whom people would hide their faces, he was despised and we had no regard for him. John says it this way. And this was the true light coming into the world that enlightens every person. He was in the world and the world came into being through him and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not accept him. I think oftentimes, you've probably heard this, maybe you've thought this, I have. I'll say this, I have. I've thought this before. And if God's good, how come he doesn't show up in this place? If God is all powerful, then, then why is it that we still experience this massive amount of suffering and persecution? Why is it that I see famine 
and war and destruction and natural desires. Why is it that if God is good, that he's powerful, that he, all, that he knows all things, why is it that he chooses not to do something about that? If God would only appear and accept some type of responsibility or give help, perhaps they would recognize and follow him. Maybe if God would show up in the middle of this disaster, Maybe would see him and know him and follow him. In fact, the gospel makes it clear again and again that he did show up in the middle of this disaster. He's constantly showing up in the middle of this disaster. The disaster called sin and eternal punishment away from God. Indeed, he could not care more It's because of this that he came. But when he came, he was ignored. He was ignored. He came and the world did not receive him, he says. You know why? Because they had a different picture in their heads about what he should be like. The world didn't receive him because before he came on the scene, they made up in their minds what the Messiah would be like. They made up in their hearts what he would say, what he would do, how he would free them from Roman oppression. And so when Jesus was not concerned with those things, they said, well, you can't possibly be God. So the question is for us. What are those things in our minds, in our hearts, in our lives, where we refuse to acknowledge who Christ says of himself that he is versus how we believe that he should be? Don't miss Jesus because of an idea that you think that he should. What that's doing is this. That's placing your ability to logic and how you would rule as God over God himself. What you're saying is this. If God measures up to my ability to reason, then I'll treat him as God. If God measures up to the way that I would do things, then I'll believe him to be God. What we're doing is we're making God, we're believing that our ability in our minds and our hearts, I can't, I've said this before, I can't do a project without running to Lowe's seven times. You know how many mistakes I make on the most basic of life tasks? I can't even choose a parking spot unless Jana was with me, right? Like I, I, I don't, I just drive around the parking lot aimlessly. Luckily for me, I'm I'm teasing. I'm broken. I mean, when I think about it, <laughs> I, there's almost nothing that's in my mind that's, that's correct. But somehow, some way, I place my ability to logic and reason and love and care here. And I say, if, if, if only Jesus could come up to my level, then I'll respond to him as God. And that's where the world missed it. That's where the world missed it. That's where we miss it. The picture is not all negative. However, some do believe, both in Israel and among the nations. In verse 12, we see this. He says this, uh, but as many as received him, then he gave the right to become children of God. Man, what, what an incredible passage. We'll try to pull that apart for a second. And to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Here's what we're gonna to really hone in for just a few minutes. First, if Jesus is God, then that means God loves us more than we could ever imagine. Second, if Jesus is God, 
then it is paramount how we respond to him. This is the two things today. If Jesus is God, it means that he loves us more than we could ever imagine. Second, if Jesus is God, then, then nothing else comes close to how we respond to him. So John uses three synonyms to refer to this act of kindness and love toward, from God towards us and how we become and receive him. He says this in verse 12, to those who receive him, believed in his name and those who are being born of God. So we can't dismiss him, we can't ignore him, we can't avoid him. If he's God, then no other words, claims, promises, or desires matter. If he's God, then whatever he says is true and final. There's no arguments, there's no contenders. Everything hinges on his words. And in these words, he says that he has given us the ability, the right to become children of God. Author Max Lucado describes this pivotal point for us in history as this hinge. He says, everything rests on this timeline of history like a compelling diamond. Its tragedy summons all sufferers. Its absurdity tracks all cynics. Its hope lures all searchers. History has idolized it and despised it. It's gold-plated and burned it, worn it and trashed it. History has done everything but ignore it. But how could you ignore such a piece of lumber suspended on beams as the greatest claim in history, a crucified carpenter claiming to be God on earth, divine, eternal, the death slayer. Never has timber been regarded so sacred. No wonder the Apostle Paul counted the cross as the event at the core of the gospel. It's bottom line sobering. If this account is true, it's history's hinge. And if not, it's history's hoax. So the question is what will, what will, be, what will we believe? Also the question is why is it that some believe and others do not? John actually, I believe, answers this question. First, I think that there's no doubt that God's gracious and sovereign initiative comes first. He's the source of life. And it's only by his grace that any life occurs and abides in us all. The right or the power to become children of God is given to us by God. Think about that for a second. We don't, we don't have any rights in and of ourselves. It's not that we can go to God and say, God, I, I have the right. right? It's, it's not even close that we would have the right. It's that he gives us the right. He gives us the right. And he says, I'm going to give you the ability to approach me. We have the power, the authority. The images of verse 13 rule out any role for human power authority in the process of becoming a child of God. But unlike natural birth, um, when the one being born of God does play a part in it. This life is not forced on the believer, but it must be received. He said to those who received and those who believed, those who are receptive to the Son, and are offered the gift of becoming the children of God. Those who receive Jesus are then given the right to become children of God. 
Here's the thing. Scripture indicates, emphatically states, that God doesn't have a criteria in which physical or mental form must meet to desire for us to believe. In fact, Scripture indicates for us, explicitly states that it's his desire that all would come to know him and receive Christ in this way so that we have the ability to become children of God. Notice just a couple of samplings. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 through 4, it says this, This is a good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. He would say it's his desire that all would come and repent. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says this, That the Lord is not slow about his promises, some count as slowness, uh, but is patient towards you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And I love that passage. I think sometimes in my own brokenness, when I look at evil and especially evil people in the world, I think to myself, well, why, why doesn't God just take them out? Like, why doesn't God just remove them from this earth? You know why? Because he's so merciful and gracious that he's giving them one more day like he gave you. So how is it that a person receives Christ? I think that's a question for us. How is it that someone would believe in a way to receive him as who he says that he is? I think Paul, writing to the Romans, gives us just this incredible master class and very short description of what it means to receive Christ. He says this in chapter 10, verse 8. What does it say? I want you to pay attention to this, these first few words because we're going to come back to this. This is incredible. He says this, and what does it say? The word, the logos. Don't, hold on to that for a second. The logos is near to you in your mouth and in your heart. He's quoting a passage in Deuteronomy. We're going to come back to that in a second. He says that that is that the faith that we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. For with a heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with a mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. For Scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all those who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, listen to this, will be saved. It's a promise. It's given to us in Scripture. So Paul's saying to accept Jesus, we have to reach a verdict about Jesus. In our hearts, our minds, our lives, we have to reach a verdict to say, I believe that you are who you said you are. I believe that you will take me back to the Father like you said that you would do. I believed that you allowed me to exchange my sin for your righteousness. We have to look at him and believe the promise that he is the only way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. There is no other way. I cannot be good enough. I cannot do good enough. We have to believe him when he makes the claim to forgive our sins. And we have to believe that he will usher us into the throne of God free from guilt and shame. 
And Paul says it, it hinges on two things, belief and confession. Confession, I think, would certainly be different than what our culture allows and demands today. I think in some ways this passage has been taken out of context because I don't know if you grew up in a, in a place like I did, but uh, in Virginia, Bible Belt, it, basically like there was times where you, you could walk uh, door to door, you could knock on people, and knock on people's door, not knock on people, knock on people's door. And, and do you remember this? Have you been ever asked the question, if you were to die today, where would you go? I think the intent was good. The intent was good. It was to bring people to a place of Jesus. But it would be like, well, I don't know. And then the next thing was, well, hey, just repeat after me. Confess with your mouth. Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? Yes, I do. Well, then say these words. And then life looked absolutely nothing different after than before. It was, it's an empty confession. Because why? Because in our culture, it's very easy, especially where we live, it's very easy for us to say, yeah, 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 sure. If this is a free eternity life insurance policy, like I lose nothing. I lose nothing by confession. I only possibly glean eternal life. But for the Romans and the Roman church, that confession meant something vastly different. With confession, it meant that their life was literally altered by their belief and their following Jesus. Life and death were at stake. Friendships, businesses, the ability to literally survive that culture. And so what they were saying is this, I will give my life away for this confession. It was not some easy sentence that they would say just in case. To say this, they would have to live this. And that's why Paul is saying it's this belief and confession. And that's why some of us are living in this massively confused spiritual state because somebody at one time or another said, repeat this after me. And there's been nothing in your heart and your life that has clung onto Jesus and said, you're all that I have. But it's not complicated either. Jesus says that you come to him. Paul says you believe and confess. These promises are still true. That if we believe with our heart and confess with our mouth, that we will be saved. This is a promise. It, it is a promise, sure, straight from Scripture. What's so good here is that when Paul writes this, he's using a term logos in a way that seems to indicate that there's more than words on a page. He refers to this, that the, that the logos is near you. This is incredible. I don't want you to miss this. The logos is near you. He's quoting De Deuteronomy. And so if you remember the story of the children of Israel, you probably remember that they were in Egypt. God's taking them to the promised land. And he promises to do that in Deuteronomy, especially. He says these words, if you obey the Lord to keep his commandments. Notice this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 10. 
He says, so if you obey the Lord to keep his commandments and his statutes which are written in the book of the law, and then if you turn to the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul, it seems very uh, mirrored to Paul's writing, right? That we would confess and we would believe. For this is the commandment that I'm giving you today, that it's not too difficult. It's not far away. It's not that you have to say, this, this ability to know God is in heaven. Who will go for us there and get it and proclaim it to us so that we could follow it, he says. He says, it's not a mystery. It's not as if the mysteries of God are written in heaven and you have to somehow find a way to go there and then read it and come back down. He says, nor is it beyond the sea that you could say, who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and to proclaim it for us so that we can follow Christ? On the contrary, Oh, I love this. The word, the logos, is near you, he says. It's near you. In your mouth and in your heart that you may follow it. What Moses is saying is he's saying in Deuteronomy, he has come to us. He's not a hide-and-go-seek God. He's not distant. He's not running from us to give us some type of treasure map with clues that we have to figure out. No, 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 no. He came to us so that we could know him and find him, so that we could have the chance to believe in him, so that there's no, so that so good that he would come for us, die for us, and take our punishment from us. The word, the logos, is close to you. And that's what John writes. In verse 14, he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Remember in the tabernacle when we studied Exodus, God instructed the people of Israel to build a tabernacle in the middle of their camp. A tabernacle where they would do sacrifices, they would smell incense, they would see the lights, they would hear the sounds, the priests would intercede for them. And God, in his infinite wisdom, didn't choose to place that tabernacle outside of the camp. Instead, he placed it right in the center, right in the middle, where people would have to literally pass by often to see God's working in the middle of Israel. And it says that, that, that he literally placed his tabernacle there. The words here that John is using is that word. He's using that he says the word came intended or tabernacled among us. That God would come and place himself in the middle of us. And he dwelt among us and he saw his glory. Glory is the only son of man, the father, full of grace and truth. And John testified him and called him out saying, this is he who has said he's coming after me. He's proved to be my superior before it, because he existed before me. So John, who was born before Jesus, is saying Jesus existed way before me. And he says, for this reason, for his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. I love this that God did not come to us to judge us, to smite us, to laugh at us and to mock us for our destruction and despair. He didn't come and to cross his arms and say, are you gonna, what are you gonna do? And sometimes like my worst moments as a father, especially when my children were young, when they would say, I, I want to do it myself, right? That what I would do is I would say, okay, let's see this. Pretty terrible, isn't it? When are you going to talk to me? When are you going to ask me for help? 
I think in some ways we envision Jesus in this way. I'm coming down. I'm going to just stand here. I'm going to wait for you guys to realize that you are terrible on your own. Instead, he comes here and he says, I, hey, listen, man. How about I'll take your terribleness. I'll take your destruction. I'll take your despair. I'll take your brokenness. And I will give you my perfection, my righteousness, my peace, my standing before God. I'll give it to you. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us to give us grace, heaped onto grace. He says, the law was given through Moses and grace and truth, those were revealed through Jesus. No one has seen God at any time. God, the only son who is in the arms of the father, he has explained him. John says this, you wanna see God? Look at Jesus. There's a lady named Mary McLaurin who has an unusual uh, condition uh, called developmental topographical disorientation. Uh, it's DDT, DTD. And uh, that means that she can't form a mental map or image of her surroundings. So unlike most people, Mary has no internal compass at all. Uh, she can be uh, one block from her house and not really know which way to turn to get back. And she writes about her condition in one of, just one of the many uh, terrifying uh, moments she had with that. She says, I was staying at a friend's home and decided to take their dog Otis for a walk. And as I started back, I realized it had happened again and I had absolutely no, no idea where I was. I was only blocks from where I had started my walk, but I'd lost, I was lost in fear. Fear and adrenaline pulsed through my veins and only made it worse. My surroundings looked so completely unfamiliar and I had no hope of getting back on my own. It was like I was dropped in the middle of a foreign land. I hadn't written down the address either of the home that I was staying so walking in any direction would just be a guess. Am I getting closer or farther away? I don't know. Would I have to knock on someone's door to use their phone to call the police? How could I expect them to return me to a safe place if I had no address to provide? She talks about later how, how someone came to her, found her, and knew where to take her. In the same way, I think it's clear that we all struggle from and suffer from a spiritual form of this same condition where we have no ability to find our way back to God on our own. None. You know this to be true because you most likely have tried this unsuccessfully like I have in my life. Maybe if I'm good enough, Maybe if I do better, maybe if I'm kind enough, maybe if I just stop the things that I know I shouldn't be doing, try harder, maybe then I'll find my way back to God. But like me, you have probably found out that you just end up further and further and further away. There's only one way that we are able to go back to the Father, and it's when we look at Jesus and we receive his promise to say, you wanna walk with me? I'll take you back. 
And it's in that moment that we decide, do we trust Jesus to be who he says he is? Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for showing us who you are, manifested, just given to us in the life of your son, Jesus. I pray that even now that you would show us even a greater glimpse who you are and give us the courage to take your hand and say, yes, Jesus, show me the way. I think sometimes um, as you continue to pray and respond, I think sometimes uh, we, we give what we call an invitation, but Jesus has given that invitation. He's already given that invitation. He says, are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you exhausted from trying on your own? Then he says, come to me. Come to me. In our time where we respond with singing, I would invite you to go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, or maybe you're struggling to grab on to him, we would love to pray with you. I promise you we won't embarrass you. We, we won't, we're not going to call you up and ask you to speak into the mic. None of that. Here's what I'm asking you to do. When we begin singing, we begin to stand. I'm going to ask you to just literally turn around and go towards the back where our prayer partners, they're wearing name tags. They will They will take you behind the curtain and pray with you for whatever you're longing for, needing Jesus to show you in life right now. Maybe it's that place to where we say, finally, Jesus, I'm tired of trying on my own. Would you give me peace with God? We would love to pray with you and show you how to walk with Jesus. Lord, would you give us the courage to even take the step to turn and to walk towards someone who can pray with us and towards you, Jesus. I pray that even that would be a confession that our life will cling to, that we believe you and we know that you will.